congregation of the Lord. With me to the back of our Psalter, so on page 62, as we consider again Lord's Day 30. Lord's Day 30. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who, according to his human nature, is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches us that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests, and further that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them. So that the Mass, at bottom, is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites, and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper, who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned, and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Beloved congregation, wherever a church exists for any length of time, there are bound to be traditions. That is, there is a set pattern and way in which things are done. It's really no different than any other society. In your family, you have traditions. In our nation, we have traditions. And that is all well and good, provided that our traditions or the normal course of our lives and the way which we carry out our responsibilities is in conformity with the word and will of God. So important is this in the life of the church that our very name, Reformed, speaks of the need to constantly be in line with what God has spoken. Our fathers in the Reformed churches, where they separated from Roman Catholicism and all its idolatries, they pleaded back to the Bible, back to the Holy Scriptures. Show me from the Bible where the things that you teach and the things that you practice can be clearly discerned. So it is Also today, in any generation, it ought not to be that in matters of religious worship, in matters of sacred doctrine, in matters of salvation, that you can take implicit faith, implicit faith in the leaders of the church, that they they know what they are doing. It's not the case that you can take implicit faith The way we do things is right because we've always done it so. No, this is not the way of the true Reformed Church. Our cry is always, show me from the Scriptures. I would hope that if anyone, anyone 
at all were to come to someone in a position of leadership in the free reformed churches and say, why is it that we do this and not another thing? They would be able to spell, spell out in clear terms why it is the word of God which compels us to this course of action. Particularly, I would speak to those who are either in positions of leadership in this congregation or hope to be one day by God's grace. May you uh, say by God's grace that you understand what it means to worship in a Reformed church and why we worship the way we do. Do you even agree with our form of worship? This is the sort of thing that catechism preaching allows us to confront head-on in order to explain not only the nature of the sacraments, but also why and how they are to be practiced in the Reformed churches. And we, if we are truly Reformed, will always say that whatever God speaks through his word, that is what settles the matter. So it is, as we continue with our series on the Lord's Supper, this becomes particularly important. In recent weeks, we have considered some of the predecessors of the Lord's Supper in the Old Covenant. We saw the Passover meal in Exodus 12 and the covenant meal on the side of Mount Sinai in uh, Exodus 24. And we saw how each one is referred to in one way or another by the Lord Jesus when he brings us the Lord's Supper. Moreover, we came last week to this most important chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, which is the clearest deposit of inspired teachings concerning how rightly to use the Lord's Supper. And just to begin to study it together, last week we surveyed the examples of abuse, abuse of the Lord's Supper, which resulted in the wrath of God being kindled against that congregation in Corinth, many indeed falling sick or dying because of their wrong treatment of the sacrament. It's not only negative, but also positive. That is why we come to this chapter again, this time with the theme, the administration of the Lord's Supper, how we are to practice it, how it is to be given, how it is to be received. It's in these ways that perhaps we will see there are many ways, many ways in which a church may be defective in their administration of the supper. And saying this, we do not wish to imply at all that we have anything more than love for those churches with a different practice than our own. It is not our place to judge other churches, particularly if they are persuaded of their own practice. My concern this afternoon is our practice. Do we understand the right administration of the Lord's Supper according to the inspired word of God? With the Lord's help, we will consider three things. The elements of the Lord's Supper, the frequency of the Lord's Supper, and the recipients of the Lord's Supper. The elements, the frequency, and the recipients. First, the elements of the Lord's Supper. As Reformed churches, we confess the truth of the regulative principle of worship. Stated very briefly, we believe that all those things which are to be included in worship are commanded by God. They are required for worship. And all those things which are not commanded nor required by the Holy Scriptures are to be excluded. I will not expand upon this principle as we hope to touch upon it when we come to the second commandment in our catechism series. But it's important simply for this reason that you would understand why I refer to elements, elements of worship. You see, in the course of explaining and applying this principle of the regulative principle of worship, the Reformed churches sought to distinguish between elements of worship and circumstances of worship. What is the difference between them? Well, I'll, I'll simply explain it to you. 
An element of worship is something of religious or spiritual significance. That's it. It means something of a religious nature. What is a circumstance? Well, it's something which is necessary in order to obey a commandment concerning worship. But it itself has no spiritual significance. Let me give you an example. The word of God has spiritual significance. The reading of the Bible by an ordained minister in a worship service has religious significance. And as such, it's an element of worship commanded by God. The color of the Bible, whether black or brown or any other color, has no religious significance. It has to be some color, but it is irrelevant. The thing behind which a minister stands, whether a pulpit or a lectern, or whether he simply stands or sits or in, is in any other position, has no religious significance. It's not an element of worship. The fact that our religious worship takes place at 4 o'clock p.m. instead of 4.30 has no religious significance. The fact that we gather for worship according to the commandment of God, well, that is an element of worship. It has religious significance. Hopefully, that is clear. What is an element? Something that must be included in worship for it has religious or spiritual significance. So, where we would come to this matter of the Lord's Supper, what we are interested in examining are what are those elements which are required to the right administration of the Lord's Supper. Perhaps immediately you're saying, well, this is, this is much too um, technical. This is uh, surely not something that the Lord cares about. Surely the Lord cares about our hearts. He doesn't really care what exactly goes on as long as we're, we're trying our best. Well, let me remind you. From Malachi chapter 1 and verse 14 where it spoke about the Passover meal. Cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. The meaning there is that while the Passover meal specifically required... According to God's appointment, a male Passover lamb. There are some who said, well, I have a male lamb, but a female lamb will do just as well, so I'll worship in my own way instead of God's way. And so God calls them a deceiver as uh, one who would affront the great king of the church, the Lord of hosts. It was an abuse of that sacrament of the Passover meal, as indeed the church at Corinth abused the Lord's Supper in different ways. So I put to you, it's not too much to ask you and I to come to the Bible with this frame of mind. What are the things that God requires for the Lord's Supper? So the Reformed Church would hold to this position, and we are not in the majority in this in the evangelical churches today, but one of the things that we would say is what is required is a minister of the gospel. A minister of the gospel. Earlier on in our catechism, uh, in a previous sermon, we looked at uh, question and answer 75. Christ feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood as assuredly as I receive from the hands of the minister. And taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. A minister. Now, it's interesting. In our text of 1 Corinthians 11, some of the clearest instruction of the Lord's Supper begins with verse 23, where Paul writes, For I have received of the Lord... That which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, think about this for a moment. The Lord, spoken of twice in this verse, is the Lord Jesus Christ. One case he is simply referred to as the Lord. The second time is the Lord Jesus. And Paul says... 
this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which I received of the Lord, I have also delivered unto you. Now, you remember, the Apostle Paul was not even converted at the time where the Lord Jesus first celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. And yet here, the apostle speaks as a minister of the gospel. And what he could say, he could say on behalf of all other ministers of the gospel. It is he who has a special prerogative and calling to both establish the right use of the Lord's Supper and to administer it unto the church. Listen to what Dr. Gill writes. The divine authority of the Lord's Supper is here expressed. It was not only instituted by him as Lord, having all power and authority in and over his churches to appoint what ordinances he pleases, but the plan and form of administration of it were received from him by the apostle. This was not a device of his, nor an invention of any man's, nor did he receive the account from men, No, not from the apostles, but he had it by revelation from Christ. Either when he he appeared to him at his first conversion and made him a minister of the gospel. Well, perhaps uh, that is not an argument that persuades you that the fact that in this case, the text, which is most important about the Lord's Supper, it comes through a minister does not necessarily prove you would say that we always have to have a minister. Well, I would put to you that if you look throughout the uh, book of 1 Corinthians, there are some things that would indicate that indeed the ministry is the proper conduit of the, of the sacrament. First, you would look at 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 where Paul speaks about himself. Yes, as an apostle, but also as a minister. And he says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. They are stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God are what? They are the doctrines of the gospel, the Trinity, the divine person of Christ, his humanity and his deity joined in one person, the nature of his death on the cross and his resurrection, the nature of the gospel and being received by faith alone and so so forth. All these mysteries, not because they are hidden, but because they are revealed. They are sacred ministries revealed in the Holy Scriptures and in a special way they are entrusted to the minister. They are stewarded by them. We argue by analogy that the Lord's Supper ought to be entrusted to one who is a steward of the mysteries, one who is a steward of the mysteries, the doctrines of the gospel, and the preaching and teaching ought also to be entrusted with the sacraments. You see this when the Lord Jesus institutes Christian baptism. And what is it that he says? Well, he says, Go ye therefore and teach All nations, there's the stewardship of the mysteries. Baptizing them, the sacrament, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The two join together, preaching and the sacrament. So also earlier on in this this book of 1 Corinthians, in the first chapter, you see Paul speaks about how he was one who baptized as well as preached. So we put to you that by the analogy of the preaching and baptism being entrusted to ministers of the gospel, so it also ought to be with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Perhaps you would argue that, well, these things are not definitive. And I would have to agree they are implications that I draw out from this text. But I would also say, look at the overall thrust of the argument here that is disorder within the, the church concerning this Sacrament, wrong use and abuse of the Lord's Supper tends towards wrath and condemnation coming upon the whole congregation, even sometimes people dying under the Lord's chastisement. Shall we not therefore say that it is rightly entrusted 
with a minister, one who is lawfully called to a gospel congregation and therefore may administer it. Recently, I've been trying to counsel a group of believers that contacted me in, in uh, the American South, and they've been worshiping just as a, a little church plan. They're not yet sure where, who they will affiliate with. And they were very convicted by this principle. We, we yearn to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but what we will do is we will wait. We will wait until a lawful minister can come and administer that in our midst. So it is. That the well-being of the church, the purity of the ordinance, they require this, a minister of the gospel. Second, we would look at this as an element of the Lord's Supper, and that is bread. Bread. You notice how it goes in verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he break, uh, sorry, verse 23. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. What a brilliant and genius and most gracious and wise act of the Lord Jesus Christ, setting apart bread to the spiritual purpose as a visible sign of his broken body to shore up and to build up the weak faith of his disciples, that where they would feast upon that bread with their mouths, they may feast upon Christ Jesus with their hearts. An important and a glorious aspect of the ordinance. But perhaps we can focus our minds a little bit more. Shall we say that it matters whether the Lord's Supper is leavened or unleavened? I want you to think about this. With me, because it's something Reformed theologians had wrestled with. Is there an element of worship? Is there something required about having it leavened or unleavened? Well, where you would look at Matthew 26, where the Lord's Supper is instituted in verse 17, you do read this, where the very word for unleavened bread is used. Now, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? So the unleavened aspect of the bread was not irrelevant within the Passover meal. There were great and elaborate regulations about keeping all leaven out of the house during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which overlapped with the Passover. It was an element of worship. It was required. And so it is that the Greek word is specifically unleavened bread. Then you go down to verse 26 of Matthew 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it. Now, it's striking that the word bread in the Greek is a word that was intentionally used here, which does not designate either leavened or unleavened bread. The point there is that it could equally apply to both. And likewise, where you would, um, where you would examine um, other passages of Scripture that speak of the Lord's Supper, it never refers to the presence or non-presence of leaven as having any significance. It might surprise you that there are denominations and traditions, even Protestant ones, that raise a big fuss about this. And they would say, well, if you're having leaven then that actually is wrong, and the Lord doesn't receive your worship. Or if, if you don't have leaven, some people have argued that, that it should be leavened. And so it is the people will divide over this. And this, the position of our congregation, is not, not that leaven is an element of worship. We would, uh, or the non-presence of leaven being an element of the Lord's Supper and worship. We agree with Pastor John Calvin who said, whether the bread is leavened or unleavened, the, red, the wine, red or white, it makes no difference. These things are indifferent and left at the church's discretion. Here we come to see an important principle that we ought to be in conformity with all that the word is said, but we ought not to want it to be more specific than the word is. If the if the Bible passes over something as without significance, then we are actually being contentious and disobedient where we press the point more 
than the text will allow. So we've passed over the, the principle that, yes, there should be a minister, and yes, there should be bread. Leavened or unleavened does not matter. Next, the presence of wine. Wine. Now we notice this as well in our text. After the same manner, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. We saw that, did, not, did we not, in a previous message, how the Lord Jesus is actually using the exact words of Moses, the New, Test- the new Covenant or Testament in my blood. But surely it's an encouragement to the believer, is it not, to have the Lord's death, his shedding of his blood set forth in this vivid display there at the Lord's Supper to strengthen our faith. There was no cup with a Passover meal of any religious significance as far as we can see from the Old Testament. And yet Jesus has this incorporated into this new covenant sacrament. Now, let me ask the question, is it actually to be wine? It's a question, is it to be wine or would something else do just as well? This is something that surely divides Christians today. I would say that we are probably in the minority having wine at the Lord's Supper. Others would have grape juice or something else. Does it matter? Well, we look at Matthew 26, verse 27, and... We have the Lord Jesus' institution here. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, that is, all of you drink it. For this is my cup of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, the fruit of the vine, or or grapes, where it sits for any length of time, the natural tendency is for it to ferment, for it to become alcoholic, and therefore to be what we call an alcoholic beverage, wine. And the Christian church has always stood flatly against drunkenness, also historically recognizing that Drinking alcohol itself is not wrong. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We say that uh, drunkenness is wrong, but alcohol is not. Now, in more recent centuries, what uh, some Christians have begun to argue is that, well, that, that quite doesn't cut it because alcoholism is a problem. Drunkenness is a problem. And so some would say, well, there should be no alcohol drunken whatsoever. And some Christians have sought to argue this, and, and they have not succeeded in proving it from the word of God. But they continue to advocate for it, and sometimes it will come in this form. Well, surely, surely, in the worship, there ought not to be wine, because there might be someone who would be tempted to get drunk. Therefore, we ought to change the worship to have not wine, but grape juice. Grape juice, of course, being a modern invention specifically designed for that purpose, so that in communion there would not be any alcohol, that the natural process of fermentation would be arrested through the the chemicals and the process that they have for creating grape juice. Well, what do we say about this? Well, it was a striking article put out just this year by a man named Jacob Rayum. Some of you might know him, the the pastor of Trinity Bible Chapel, which got somewhat famous for staying open during COVID here in Ontario. But he also uh, made headlines in the Baptist circles in another way, because whereas the Baptist churches almost unanimously use grape juice, he became persuaded this year that, no, we, we need to change to wine. He persuaded his consistory of this, and so they made the change. And you can read about how it is that he spells this out where he speaks of uh, grape juice, wine, and our broken tradition. This is the article that he writes, or no, sorry, wine at the Lord's Supper, our broken tradition. So he draws out a number of of things that I found most interesting. One of the things he points out is that the very uh, existence of wine is often connected in the Old Testament 
with the love of Christ for his church, specifically in the Song of Solomon. If you read, for example, Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 2, there the, the love of Christ the bridegroom for his church is likened to wine. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Again, in uh, verse 4, draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. And many other references in the Song of Solomon. And listen to what Pastor Rayum says about this in his article. Quote, the Bible emphatically compares wine to marriage and especially, especially marital lovemaking. Wine is rich with intoxicating properties that bring gladness to the heart. And the analogy with covenantally guarded lovemaking should go without further explanation. This is one of his arguments for why we must use wine in the Lord's Supper. Because there is a spiritual and religious meaning to it being wine rather than grape juice. Where it is an element of worship and not something indifferent, we have no right to remove it with something else. Another argument that he makes, and that comes from our text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look with me at verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. And one is hungry, and another is drunken. What have ye not houses to eat? and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and so forth. Well, the point here is, is a really simple one, that the element that was used in the worship at Corinth was something that, when used in excess, brought drunkenness. It was an alcoholic beverage that they were abusing, and so the whole nature of his admonition. Listen to Jacob Rayum again. From Paul's corrective admonition, we learn that he did not instruct them to change the beverage, but rather to live in light of the second birth by being moderate and orderly. It's an important point. The Lord's Supper is being abused. People are sinning and actually getting drunk because you're using alcohol in the Lord's Supper. Does he say, well, we have to use something else that's non-alcoholic? No. He says, control yourselves and act like Christians. It goes on, shedding light on the contents of the cup, 1 Corinthians further helps with those who fear that wine at the table will lead to drunkenness. Often people object to wine at the Lord's table out of sincere concern that it will tempt some to inebriation. If we follow the apostolic example, we won't change the substance of the cup to deal with darkened hearts of drunkards, but instead we will demand that the tradition be properly practiced which includes using wine and also refraining from drunkenness all at once. Wisdom here. The Lord Jesus Christ can free from every sin. He can free from the temptation to drunkenness. He can give us that repentance that turns from such ungodly practices. And surely one of the ways he does those through the preaching of the gospel, another way is through the right use of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper to strengthen faith and to bring about more godliness. Surely we would not count ourselves more wise than God in this matter. No, we would trust that the Lord will use the means that he has appointed in order to sanctify his people. So we've seen this. Uh, there's, yes, the minister, there's the bread, there's the wine. The wine also an element of the Lord's Supper. Next, we see the table, the table. And again, this would be an area where we are in the minority. Why do we use tables? Why tables? Isn't it a lot more convenient? You just sit in your pew and have someone bring it to you. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 10, one chapter over. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 20. There we read, But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. 
Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? There's a very clear implication here. Well, how is the Lord's Supper to be practiced? At the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper should be at the Lord's table. How big should the table be? What should it be made of? Those aren't elements of worship. That's not discussed here. What is an element is that there should be a table. There should be a surface that is holding up the elements of worship, the bread and wine, so that the believers can gather around that table and rightly partake of the ordinance. Why? Well, because it's about fellowship. He said, I would not have you to have fellowship with devils. No, I'd have you to have fellowship with Christ at his table. How is it that you show fellowship with other people? You invite them into your family dinner table. So it is that the Lord Jesus wants his troubled and weak believers to know that he welcomes them into a very close relationship of fellowship at the table of the Lord. Indeed, we can't say that if you don't have a table, it's no longer the Lord's Supper, as though those people that don't have the Lord's uh, table don't really love the Lord. No, but what we are saying is that we as a church, we want to have all those things which Christ has given unto us. We want to depart from none of them, nor to add nor subtract from them. Last case, we'll mention this as well, the cup, the cup. In that same chapter, chapter 10, and verse 13. Um, yes, I think I have the wrong verse here. Oh, yes, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? There's reference to a cup here, a cup of blessing which is blessed through the prayers of the minister and the prayers of Christ unto the strengthening of the faith. Likewise, in verse 25 of chapter 11, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. So it is in our practice that where we prepare the meal and present it before everyone, we consider it an important principle that there be one cup that is presented before all, for them to visualize and to understand that this is the cup that unites all the congregation, that the blood of Christ represented by the wine poured into that cup, that is received by faith to all who receive Christ in the sacrament. And it is an interesting thing that if you look at it historically, it was a common practice throughout the whole history of the church that all would drink of the same cup. That all drink of the same cup represented here in this cup that is referred to in the scriptures, always in the singular, the cup and not the cups. Now, I've known some ministers who, who took that principle so far. I know one man who actually threatened to resign from his church if they drank from more cup than one. And he said, no, this is, this is clear. It's in the Bible. I will, I will not minister the supper in more than one cup. Well, I don't uh, hold that, that I would resign from a church that uses more than one cup. But I would say that it is something that we should think about. How is it that, for the most part, all of our free reform churches in very recent years, just a matter of decades, some of them have gotten away from one cup altogether. They don't even have it as an option to drink of. Whereas in the relatively recent past, it was always one cup. Well, the reason, as I understand, is not really from a textual argument from the Bible. It's largely through the concern. Well, we might get sick if we catch germs. You know? So that is an argument, and it's not something that we would disparage if someone has a genuine concern about it. But likewise, with the COVID crisis, we always have to ask this question. Did God ever promise us safety, safety in his worship? He did not. He did not. Sometimes there is a risk in serving the Lord. So I put to you 
And if we are serious about this, let us pray about that as well. What is the right use of the cup in the Lord's Supper? Well, these are the elements of the Lord's Supper. I want to also speak with you about the frequency. Frequency. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But I've, I've seen uh, people in the Reformed churches become very contentious. I was trying to counsel one young man who was thinking of joining our church. And he was always coming back to this. He was so upset that we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper every single week. He's saying, well, you must not be very serious about the Bible because you only celebrate it four times a year. Well, the question we ought to ask is, is there actually some kind of biblical argument that we have to celebrate the Lord's Supper every week? Well, they, some would argue that there is. Let's assess their argument. Well, basically two texts, and I'll just read them for you from the book of Acts. One is found early in the story of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And we read, and they continued, speaking of the early church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So those are the things they did steadfastly. They continued the apostles' doctrine, as it was preached, in fellowship with one another and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The other text is in Acts chapter 20, later on in the book of Acts, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them readily to depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. So there it is that they're again breaking bread, as it's called, together on the first day, on the Lord's day. So the argument... uh, that they would make from this, these texts are basically this. One is that those references are certainly to the Lord's Supper. They can't mean anything else. That's the first part. The second part is that they imply that you must celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. That's the argument. Well, in the first place, we disagree. We disagree that this must certainly take pl- be referring to the Lord's Supper because that phrase, breaking of bread, might eat just as easily refer to fellowship meals, which also took place on the Sabbath. That's the first thing we would say. The second point is that even if we grant the premise, and I really have no problem granting it's the Lord's Supper in either case, but none of them say that you must have it every year. What what does it say? It says in Acts 2 that they celebrated the Lord's Supper, if it is the Lord's Supper, steadfastly. And in Acts 20, it says that they celebrated the Lord's Supper, if it is the Lord's Supper, when Paul came on the first day. So what you have is, yes, it was celebrated steadfastly, and it was celebrated on the first day. It doesn't say it was celebrated every Lord's Day. Well, that's not really a strong argument. I think you'll agree. Why is it that some people in the Reformed churches are really insistent upon this? We have to do away with everything that we've done in the past. We have to have it every Lord's Day. Well, I would say a couple reasons. One is... There seems to be this idea that more is always better. More is always better. If we have more of the Lord's Supper, we will benefit more from it. And I would just put to you that that seems to be smuggling in a sort of idea that the blessings of the sacrament are kind of automatic. They're automatic. If you have a lot of the Lord's Supper, then you'll be growing even more as a Christian. And I put to you that as you trace out the argument in this passage... It is not guaranteed, apart from your personal faith and apart from your personal preparation for receiving the supper, you cannot expect that more will always be better. Yes, indeed. You could indeed have a church where the elders of that church determine that it is in the best interest of the church for a season to have many cases of the Lord's Supper. But if that is a decision made automatically without reference their spiritual well-being or the consequences of it as they observe it, well, I would put to you it is not wise, not wise. And really, where you look at the biblical data, there's really no clear command for how often to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Nowhere in the Bible is there a clear command. It's left to the prudence and wisdom of the church as it's entrusted to the elders. Is it the case that we would be breaking a rule if we celebrated the Lord's Supper five times a year instead of four, or three times, or two times, or ten times? There's no, there's no rule about these things. It's left to the, to the discretion, the wisdom of the churches. 
But in that case, surely the, the main emphasis is this, that we ought to make the best use of the Lord's Supper for however, however many times we are blessed to participate with it. Let us celebrate it, let us treasure it, and let us rightly prepare for it. Let us have messages for the preparation of the supper in advance of it. Let us be thinking and praying about the Lord's Supper before it comes, and let us have a message when it comes that is directly focused on that. One time this year I was preaching for a church that celebrates the Lord's Supper every week. I didn't make any issue of it. I celebrate the Lord's Supper with them. But one of the, the ladies mentioned uh, how we do it at our church. And she pointed out, wow, that must be so special that, that you have it four times a year. You bring out the tables. You have a message about it. It must be the case that it's really something special in your church. I think maybe she was trying to say in her own way that it had become a little bit routine in her own context. Well, I'll leave that with you to make your own assessment. But I would just simply leave you with this. So there ought not to be contention about this matter and certainly there ought to be wisdom concerning the spiritual needs of the church concerning the frequency finally we speak of the recipients the recipients of the lord's supper and you'll remember in a previous message i mentioned this is a growing problem in the reformed churches thankfully not in the free reform as far as i can tell but there are increasing calls to allow small children to partake of the lord's supper what is the impetus for this, well, one of the arguments that is used is, well, children participated in the Passover meal. Therefore, they should celebrate in the Lord's Supper, which has taken the place of the Passover meal. Well, we've already sought to dispel that argument. You can listen to the sermon where I explain that is not a valid argument. Very briefly, the point is that it's not conclusive that the children did partake in the Passover meal. And if they did then the reality is that the Lord's Supper is not simply the Passover, but it is different. What are some of the other arguments that they would make? Well, one argument that they would make is that the whole thrust of this chapter 11, you see, is about unity. And doesn't it divide the church? Doesn't it divide the church when we allow our small children, who after all are included in the covenant of grace, from participating in the Lord's Supper? Well, I, I appreciated what Pastor Gavin Beers of the Free Presbyterian Church continuing put it. Well, you, if you think about it this way, we are all citizens of Canada. And that is also the case with our children. Our children are citizens of Canada by virtue of their birth here in Canada. But Canada would be a very strange country if all the privileges of being a citizen of Canada were granted to children upon their birth. If it were the case that children would have the privilege of fighting in wars or owning a gun or buying alcohol or voting or getting married, we would say it's not a very responsible country. So it is also the case with the Church of Jesus Christ. Yes, our children are members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Yes, they are included in the covenant of grace. But there are some privileges of the covenant of grace which are suited to an age of maturity. And look here, yes, there's warning against divisions in the body, but there are also specific directions on celebrating the Lord's Supper. Listen, take, eat, this is my body. Drink it, verse 25. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Verse 27, wherefore, whosoever shall eat and drink this bread, eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a man examine himself, examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. There are commands here to remember, to examine, to take, to eat, to discern the Lord's body. Active spiritual disciplines. Listen to what one elder in the PCA uh, church by the name of Wes White wrote. 
He says the language indicates general rules for partaking, not statements that are limited to the specific circumstances of the Corinthians. This warning includes the sins of the Corinthians, but it was a general prescription that is designed to show how one must partake and the consequences of improperly partaking of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a sacred meal. The very honor of Christ is at stake. He has fenced the table and said it is only to be partaken by Christians who are believers and who rightly prepare themselves to remember, to examine, to discern. So it is also summarized in our catechism. Question 81, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? Answer, for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by their passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy, but hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink, judgment to themselves. And if we were being honest, we must say that those churches that are pushing towards pedo communion, infant communion, all children partaking of the Lord's Supper for an infancy, we must say that ultimately this principle of our confessions in the scripture is utterly disregarded. Often it comes from this point of view. We assume our children are regenerate. We assume that they have examined themselves. We assume, we assume. And never do we test, never do we examine, never do we wait for an age of maturity, never do we ask for a credible confession of faith, never do we look at their walk of life and see if their confession be genuine. So it is that the free reformed churches in particular have always held that it is wrong, wrong to so, to so treat children in this way. No, we call them to faith in Christ. We invite them to Christ. We pray for them. And yes, we think well of them where they express the beginnings of faith. But we do not assume, we do not presume, and nor do we bring them to the Lord's Supper until they are prepared. Thus, congregation, we have considered some of these things concerning the right administration. Is this a worthwhile use of our time to spend some time focusing, thinking prayerfully about how to rightly have the Lord's Supper? I believe it is. We want this precious love gift of Christ to be stewarded, to be protected, not only for ourselves, but for our children's children. May God so grant that this would be the case. Amen.